you just read the Kansas Constitution while we were sitting here? I pulled it up. <laughs> Amazing. <laughs> I, I thought it was in the joint rules. I was wrong. The answers are in the Constitution. Welcome back to the Health in the 34th podcast. Marissa, good to see you and record with you again. Yes, happy 2023 to everyone. <laughs> My name is Lacey Kennett. I'm the Communications Director for the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas. And I'm Marissa Alcantara, StoryBank Fellow for the Alliance for Healthy Kansas. Today's episode will be a really good one because we have our advocacy consultant, Sean Gatewood, here to get us primed and ready for the 2023 legislative session. Sean is a former legislator in the Kansas House of Representatives. He's been a CanCare advocate and champion since the ACA established expansion in 2010. In addition to working on expanding our state's Medicaid program, he is also active as an overall health advocate, leading the CanCare Advocates Network. We also have the executive director for the Alliance, April Holman. April was on our very first episode of Health in the 34th and has extensive experience with the legislature, including previously working at the nonpartisan Kansas Legislative Research Department. Welcome, Sean and April. Thanks, Thanks for having us. For having us. <laughs> so, April, for all of our listeners who might be less familiar with CanCare expansion, can you just give us a brief overview of why it's important to Kansas, especially right now? Sure. When the Affordable Care Act was passed in 2010, it had a requirement that state Medicaid programs be expanded to cover individuals up to 138% of the federal poverty level. But a Supreme Court decision in 2012 made expansion optional for states. So far, 39 states have expanded their Medicaid programs, including all of our neighbors in Kansas, leaving us sort of an island in the Midwest without access to affordable health care for thousands of our citizens. There are a number of ways that expanding CanCare will benefit our state. So the first is that it will reduce health care costs for everyone in the state. When hospitals and providers treat uninsured individuals, they often end up not being uh, compensated for this work, resulting in high uncompensated care costs, which they then have to pass along to everyone else. So providing affordable health insurance to those who are currently uninsured will bring down uncompensated care costs for providers and reduce costs for everyone. CanCare expansion also will help protect Kansans against medical debt. So nearly four out of every 10 Kansans has medical debt or knows someone who does. If they have insurance to help uh, cover the cost of their health care, then they won't incur those that debt in the first place. And it will make a big difference for family financial security and um, uh, it'll also make a big difference for those providers again. Um, CanCare expansion fixes eligibility limits, which are way too low. So currently in Kansas, a single mother with two children would need to make less than about $8,750 per year in order to qualify for CanCare coverage. But expanding CanCare eligibility would allow this single mother to work more hours um, or get a higher paying job without the risk of losing health insurance coverage. 
And another thing that would happen if we were to expand is that childless adults, and by that I mean any adult between the age of 19 and 64 who doesn't have a child under the age of eight, uh, 19 in their household, um, would gain access to can care that they don't have now. In Kansas, childless adults just don't qualify for can care um, unless they have a disability or some other um, means of, of getting onto that can care coverage. Uh, can care expansion protects and strengthens rural health care providers and the communities they serve. So Kansas has more rural hospitals at risk of closing than any other state our size. Hospitals, healthcare providers, and the organizations that serve them all support expansion because it brings down their uncompensated care costs and really helps to shore up their financial stability. Expansion helps with the general workforce shortage because more people have access to the physical and behavioral health care they need to be healthy enough to re-enter or remain in the workforce. And we know that in Kansas, we've been really struggling with a workforce shortage, and particularly in some of the sectors where we see more people qualifying um, by way of their income for uh, can care under expansion. So things like retail sales, um, you know, uh, food service, um, some of those things that we notice when we pull up to the drive through at our local restaurant and see that it's closed today because they don't have anyone to work. And I know that's definitely happened to me. I don't know if it's happened to any of you before. Yeah. Um, and then finally, uh, can care expansion keeps Kansas economically competitive. All of our surrounding states have expanded their Medicaid programs. This means that employers have a harder time recruiting workers, especially in border communities. It, um, we see that we are losing our qualified health care providers in those border communities to competitors on the other side of the state border um, who can provide signing bonuses and higher salaries because they don't have to deal with that uncompensated care that our providers do. Um, they also have something that Kansas doesn't, access to affordable health insurance for workers who fall in that coverage gap. So many reasons. So many so benefits. Many. <laughs> it's amazing. So uh, let's give our listeners a quick overview of the Kansas legislature because the, the legislative session has just begun, as we know. Um, and so for many of our listeners, they may not know how it works. They may not know the details. They just know that sometimes the legislature makes laws. That's how I was before I, you know, got in the know. So, Sean, can you talk to us about the legislature? Who makes up the legislature? When do they meet? What can Kansans kind of expect here at the beginning of this legislative session? Give us all the info. Sure. Um, so our legislature in Kansas is a citizen legislature, meaning that they're not professional politicians. These are folks that are uh, coming from a variety of walks of life, and they are from defined districts around the state. So they cover all corners of the state and represent roughly the same number of people uh, from each legislative district. So is that, can I ask a question? Is that rare? Do you know? So the, it, it's not 
entirely rare. Some mm -hmm. places, though, some states, um, it's more of a full-time year-round job. Oh, okay. Uh, some, like our legislature here, meets every year. Some legislatures meet only every couple of years. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's uh, just more of a familiarity for our listeners. Okay. All right. Um, and so there's 125 members of the Kansas House of Representatives, of which I used to be one, um, and then 40 members of the Kansas State Senate. Um, it's a Republican majority in both chambers. The House serves a two-year term, while the Senate serves a four-year term. And this last year was an election year, as most of you know. Um, that means a couple of things. Uh, one is that, you know, when it's not an election year, um, the legislature basically sort of stops in place. So all the bills from the previous year have made whatever progress they made, and they, they might be in this committee or in this chamber uh, or whatever, and so there's sort of preloaded legislative session. When you come out of an election year, it starts from ground zero. So there's no bills in the pipeline. They have to all be introduced and start from scratch. So it tends to be a little bit of a slower start. To be clear, um, that's that's bills in both chambers. So all the bills start over again. There's no, the, even though the senators are sticking around for another two years, the um, all bills start over. Uh, so it, it starts in both chambers from sort of that ground zero level. Um, in this year, um, it was just, ha this election, it was just House members that were elected. So it's all new fresh terms for uh, for the Kansas House of Representatives and largely the same returning senators from last time because they weren't elected this time. They'll be elected next election cycle. Um, there has been a few, you know, retirements and things like that, um, but largely the, the Kansas Senate remains the same where the House has uh, just now elected all new leadership for both, both the Republicans and the Democrats um, and the, the sort of chamber leadership. And so you know, new committees have been assigned, all of that sort of stuff. Um, so there's going to be a, a little bit more on the House side, sort of getting used to what committees exist, when they meet, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, the legislative session generally lasts um, from mid-January you know, January this year, starting January 9th, uh, through sometime in May. Um, and it just kind of depends a little bit when the legislature finishes up its uh, its business when it when it kind of ends. Um, they meet basically every weekday, except for some scheduled breaks and holidays. I don't think I'd ever realized that they all are reelected at the same time. Yeah, so just it's every four years the entire legislature gets yeah. elected. Most other states they don't do it all at once like that. Yeah, you know, at least on the Senate side it's staggered or something. But in our state, it's everybody all at once. So I think one of the things our listeners should know about the legislative process is the importance of the people elected as leadership in the legislature. Can you tell us more about the legislative leadership and the role that they play in what happens at the legislature? So the Senate president is Senator Ty Masterson from Wichita, and the vice president is Rick Wilborn from McPherson. The Senate uh, majority leader is Senator Larry Alley from Winfield, and the minority leader is Senator Dinah Sykes from Lenexa. Um, can you, um, for us, can you differentiate what is the difference between, like, the Senate president and the majority leader? 
So the Senate president is, in theory, they the Senate president as well as the Speaker of the House are elected by the entire body. So they are chamber leadership versus a caucus leadership. So okay. it's leadership of the re- floor leader of the Republicans or floor leader of the Democrats versus the leadership of the chamber. So they assign what committees exist. Um, they assign offices and that sort of stuff. Okay. Um, where the majority leader will decide who, you know, which bills come up in a given day. Uh, the Senate president and um, the uh, Speaker of the House decide where a bill goes, which committee it, it will go to. Mm. Um, and so it's more of a sort of floor leadership, leadership of your caucus versus leadership of the entire chamber. If that distinguished. Okay. And I think you touched on this, Sean, but I think they work really closely together, that majority leader and um, the either the speaker or the president of the Senate. A- absolutely. And so it's always controlled by the majority party. And then um, they work, you know, their officers are basically side by side to kind of decide on an agenda. Okay, And, you know, you might even be able to think about it in terms of the Senate president being the CEO or the big boss of the Senate and then, you know, the majority leader being the director who is um, also in power Mm -hmm. and um, is calling a lot of shots, but um, maybe not quite at that CEO level. Yeah, like a like a chief operating officer. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. There you go. Oh yeah, very good. Okay. Now on the House side, they're they're all new. So the Speaker of the House now is uh, Dan Hawkins. He had been the majority leader on the uh, on the House, re- you know, for the House Republicans. He's from Wichita, so he got a promotion this year. And then Speaker Pro Tem, on the Senate side, you have a Vice President. On the House side, you have the Pro Tem, and that's who kind of takes charge whenever the Speaker or the President are, are gone. On the on the House side, the Speaker Pro Tem is Blake Carpenter from Derby. Majority Leader is Chris Croft from Overland Park. And the Minority Leader is Vic Miller from Topeka. They're all new to their position this year. Mm. Um, there's no holdovers from previous sessions. So everybody's kind of taking a new office spot, uh, which is kind of rare, to be honest. Usually there's some folks yeah, that kind of hold over. What does that mean? Like, does that have any meaning? or? I don't, I don't think it really does. Yeah. Speaker left so folks kind of just moved up the chain okay um, yeah. on the republican side on the democratic side minority leader tom sawyer has been around for a very long time and he just has decided he he didn't want to uh, hold that position anymore so it kind of opened up the spot and uh, representative miller decided to run for it i don't i don't think it has any really deeper meaning than that mm-hmm uh, there's a lot of representation from Wichita. There's a lot of leadership from rural areas at the committee chairmanship level, which in and of itself has a lot of power. That that tends to be where more of this sort of rural leadership is coming from, at least for now. Can you answer a question that I've always had? What is a whip, a majority or minority whip? I have whip? always had that question as well. <laughs> yeah, you were not the only one, and I've yeah. never thought to look it up. It you know? does like... sound like the coolest title to have, I'll be <laughs> honest. But what is it? <laughs> So the whip, the whip is responsible for uh, sort of getting a vote count for their caucus. Kind of a funny anecdote when I when I was a member of the Kansas House, uh, because of my propensity to be up and moving around and talking to others and that kind of thing, uh, they sat me next to the whip, um, and so my caucus whip, and it was his job 
uh, to kind of make sure that I was in my seat and voting whenever uh, whenever votes came about. And so that's that's their job is to make sure that their members are voting and on crucial votes they try to kind of lean on them to They're the bring social in their butterfly. They yeah. Talk to everybody. Well, the social butterfly is the guy that they have to chase down. That's oh. that's me. <laughs> yeah. That's you. They're like the they're, babysitter. They're <laughs> It's yeah, it's a little bit of that. It's a little bit of um, like the sheep herder. Yeah, yeah, it's, a yeah. Bit of, it's, it's a sheep herding job. That's exactly what it is. Oh, that's an oldest child of the family role. I was never really out of the chamber, but I would certainly be up talking to others, working be things the out. Butterfly. That's exactly. right. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, committee chairs, that says something else we kind of touched on. Mm-hmm. They determine which bills get a hearing, and then mo- and, and almost as importantly, which of those uh, bills that got heard will actually get what they call worked. Worked is when they, the bill comes up for internal discussion of the committee. So that's the opportunity to amend the bill and, and then uh, potentially pass it out. The chairs who calls for that um, opportunity, the chairs who sets the committee to, to have a hearing, and then they will also set the rules of the committee, how long people can testify, how much time is given for a particular bill to be heard. You know, some of these m- more important topics, you'll have multiple day hearings where some of them you'll have, you know, four bills being heard in a day, and they kind of churn through them. The committee chair has a has, has quite a bit of power just in that, they're appointed by the, the Speaker or the, the Senate President. April, let's expand more on the importance of reaching out to not only your own legislator, which we've talked about on this podcast before, but also the importance of legislative leadership and reaching out to them. So why is that important to what we do? We know that CanCare expansion is popular in Kansas. So multiple statewide polls, and even in the past year, have shown that anywhere between 70 percent and 80 percent of Kansans support expanding our state's Medicaid program. But it doesn't seem to be a topic that is a high priority at the legislature. So our goal at the Alliance has been to get advocates and everyday Kansans to make so much noise that the legislature can't ignore expansion anymore. We just launched our newest campaign called Steps to Expansion. And reaching out to legislators and legislative leadership is a cornerstone step we need to take. In this campaign, we break down how advocates can help on a step-by-step basis during the legislative session to support expansion efforts. So in the first step, we're asking advocates to introduce themselves to their elected legislators and both the Senate president and Speaker of the House. I think it's really important to remember that this is about relationships and relationship building. So it's not about just angry and insistent voices all the time. It's about reaching out and establishing that rapport so that when your elected official receives an email from you or a phone call, they're going to be more likely to listen and really to hear what you have to say. The more pressure elected officials feel from supporters and advocates, the more likely they're going to be to take the next step toward expansion. 
I'm really excited for the Steps to Expansion. I think it's going to be a really, really great campaign. I'm looking forward to it. So, Sean, as a former legislator yourself, how do you recommend someone make contact with their elected official, especially if they haven't ever done something like that before? Is there a really effective way to do that? Sure. I think that the most important thing is is that they do it, uh, less about how they do it. Um, and I'm, what I mean by that is, um, if you've never done it before, I, I just want to encourage folks to uh, get involved. And, and so the best way to do that is find a way that's most comfortable for them. An email, signing on to one of our uh, letters, things like that. Or if, if you're more comfortable in picking up the phone and uh, calling the legislator's office, um, then I think that that's great. As you build that relationship, contact folks when they're back in their districts. The more you're building that relationship, the more they're going to listen, and the more that they potentially, you know, that legislator goes to their leadership and says, you know, I'm beginning to understand why my constituents want this. It is uh, extremely important to my district. Here's why. The Alliance is always here to help, too. So if you want to do a mock phone call or want us to help you walk through the process, you can always reach out to us. We have some new tools on our website as well, which is www.expandcancare.com. So we have um, little training modules that have to do with different types of advocacy work that you can watch. They're all around, I don't know, five minutes or so, and they give you some insights. If this is something new to you, we want to make it as easy as possible and demystify the process. You know, I think one of the things that we run into the most is just that folks are intimidated by the process. Mm -hmm. And I want to bring up what I said earlier about this being a citizen legislature. This isn't, they're not professional politicians that are somehow, you know, out of reach. These folks come from all corners of the state, variety of walks of life. And once you kind of get to know them a little bit, it's just, you know, it's your neighbors. We're here to kind of help relax folks with sort of anxiety about contacting legislators because it it seems intimidating, but once you kind of get into it, it really is not. And so we're happy to demystify and happy to bring sort of that anxiety down. When I was growing up, I remember that my representative was also my family's pharmacist. (laughs) You would see him on the newspaper and then drive through and get your prescription and it was the same man and I was very confused, but it's very cool too. new steps to expansion campaign but i think first it would be helpful for us to go through the process of maybe how a bill becomes a law in kansas if you'll both help us understand uh, how what does that process look like how are laws made in kansas from the beginning to the end it's a it's a pretty detailed process but it's a formula that is the same for you know each bill so once you get the hang of it it all kind of makes sense so first a bill is introduced um, it can be introduced by a legislator by a committee 
or you know there can be a request for that bill from an outside um, party. You'll see that at the beginning of the session, a lot of people will come before different committees asking for those committee bills to be introduced. A bill is given a, a number once it has been drafted and actually put in the hopper, and the bill number will either begin with SB for Senate bill or HB for House Bill. There are also some different designations for constitutional amendments. So mm-hmm. um, those would be HCR or House, S- concurrent, House resolution. concurrent Resolution or Senate Concurrent Resolution. Okay. It, those are less common, but they're definitely out there. Bills are assigned to committees once they have been given a number and the committee chair decides what bills will get a hearing. Some never do get a hearing. Some get a hearing early on and are worked early on, and then some have kind of a slower progress through the process. Kind of goes back to that control of the committee chair, and obviously the committee chairs are um, receive their power from the Senate or House leadership. That's kind of what we've run into with expansion and Mm -hmm. difficulties getting through the process. Mm -hmm. If the person at the top of that power hierarchy is not a supporter of your legislation, you're going to find a lot of roadblocks to get through the regular process. And Mm -hmm. and that's what's happened with with us. The public definitely has a role to play in the process. So at every hearing, there should be time for public comment. And um, sometimes that's limited. So um, if there are a lot of people who want to provide comments and testify on a bill, you might see a situation where that you only get three minutes. There could possibly even be moments where people have to provide written testimony only as opposed to being able to provide that oral testimony. But either way, there's an opportunity for the public to be able to weigh in. Now, that that can be very, very limited just in the fact that sometimes the the hearing notice, you're supposed to get 24 hours. Sometimes you won't get even that much. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they notice it. Well, you have to have that testimony you know written in let them know for most people around the state that's it's very very difficult even having that written in advance was was kind of helpful because how quickly this stuff goes that's where we come in handy at the alliance yeah I was wondering on the written testimony versus the um, in-person testimony is one of those stronger than the other what do you think legislators listen to more well, I personally, I think that they listen to the oral testimony for somebody standing right in front of you that they can ask questions of. That can be a very intimidating process for mm-hmm. some people. But, you know, for the individuals coming in that then sort of not professional lobbyists, it would look very, very bad for a legislator to sort of really lean on somebody. Um, uh, that doesn't really happen all that, you know, what people kind of think is going to happen. They, they more or less get to go up, say what they want to say, and then they'll sit back down. And then then having that in front of you, uh, you know, a a regular person that has taken their time to come out there is a very impressionable thing. I did that as a, as a young person myself with a dispute that I had had and it, and it really did sway policy. So that's cool. It it becomes addicting. And then all of a sudden you have a career. (laughs) (laughs) Then you can't stay away. Um, So, you know, kind of the next step in the process, if the committee 
if the committee chooses, they will debate the bill and vote for it to be considered by the full chamber. Again, this is a place that um, a lot of bills get hung up on. So sometimes there will even be a hearing but the committee does not either have the time to work the bill or chooses not to work the bill and advance it out of committee. If the bill makes its way out of committee, it will be put on the full chamber's calendar. And this is one of those other places that it may or may not ever get to the top part of the calendar, which, um, you know, there's a line Um, on the list. And so if a bill is above the line, that means it's going to actually have its day to be debated. That day, if it's below the line, it's waiting. And some bills remain below the line, not just for one full session, but for two full sessions before they eventually die there. The infamous line. (laughs) The line. line. (laughs) Yes. The the line is truly just a line on the calendar. (laughs) Um, but it is. I mean, it's very uh, significant. Yeah. And that's the that's decided by the majority leader in each chamber decides what bills are going to be heard the next day. So they're the one who, you know, draw the line. That's another issue with sort of following things that can make it a little bit difficult. But it, those the calendars come out in the afternoon or evening the day before. And then the next day, whatever time they go, you know, each chamber goes on the floor. That's when those bills are going to be actually sort of debated among the senators. So you can kind of tune in on the legislative website, watch live, listen live. But if you have your bill, there's little RSS feeds. You can track your bill and you'll see if it comes up above the line. And then you can uh, you can watch and listen. Yeah. And um, just to piggyback on what Sean was saying, the Kansas legislature has a website that has a link to all of the calendars. So you could go on from, you know, liberal Kansas and see what the calendar is going to be for the upcoming day. Their website is just at www.kslegislature.org. So pretty easy to get to, and they have a lot of resources there that help citizens navigate through the process. So if a bill does make it to the floor of the chamber, there will be opportunities for amendments and debate. All of the different amendments don't necessarily have a roll call vote. So you might not know if you're not there who voted for an amendment and who didn't vote for it. There is an exception. If a certain amount of people in the House or Senate choose to ask for a roll call vote that is recorded and constituents can see, then they have to do an extra procedural measure. And so there will be some recorded votes. But every bill before it is final, um, well, you know, that final vote on the bill is recorded. So you will be able to see where your particular um, elected officials were on that policy. And you would get that. It's kind of a companion to the calendar. It's the um, journal of the House or Senate. It's issued every day. Again, there are links to it from the legislature's website. And it gives basically a recap in official language of what took place on, on the floor of the House and Senate that day. You know, it's sort of a misconception uh, many times that, that folks think amendments can be, you know, whatever subject you want to put on whatever bill. 
And at least at the, in Kansas, there has it has to be germane. It has to have some commonality. Now, that is a point of contention. What what actually constitutes that germaneness? And in, in, in each chamber, it's different, and it has varied over the years. You know, you, you can't just have a, a, a bill about highway speed limits and put in Medicaid expansion or something <laughs> like that, right? Like, it's got to have some, some threads of similarity. That's just something else to kind of be, you know, you sort of watch out for. Mm. So if if a bill makes it all the way through this process and passes out of one chamber, either the House or Senate, then the process starts all over again on the other side. So if a bill makes it through both chambers and there are pretty significant differences between the two sides, then it will go to a conference committee for the House and Senate to kind of hash out the differences. And um, eventually, hopefully, our bill gets all the way through the process and goes to the governor's desk for the governor to sign, and then it becomes law. It is kind of amazing when you think about all of these steps that we pass any laws right. ever. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. Like. But it can go pretty routinely if it's something that is either widely pop- popular or at least not super contentious. The last part of that is that if the governor vetoes the bill, there's an opportunity for the legislature to override that veto. And actually, the CanCare expansion bill from 2017 made it all the way through the process, and Governor Brownback, who was governor at the time, vetoed the bill. And it came back for an override, and we fell just three votes short in the Kansas House of overriding the veto. So it's a complicated process. Is that a two-thirds majority? Is that what it takes? Or does it depend? Um, It does require a supermajority in order to um, override a veto. Now now that we know the process of how a bill becomes the law, let's get more into our steps to expansion. So we've talked about the importance of contacting legislators in the first step, which is happening now. Go to our website, expandcancare.com, and get started. Uh, What other steps in the campaign do we have coming up? Well, our thought process behind the STEPS campaign was that we wanted to have a clear, actionable step that expansion supporters could take with each step in the legislative session. So it's hard to keep track of where an individual bill might be in the legislative process. So this is a way we can keep everyone on the same page and coordinate efforts to be as effective as we can be. It's also a way to really just help individuals know concretely how they can weigh in and what the best thing for them to do is in that moment. Each step includes actions that can be taken by individual advocates and organizations who want to support CanCare expansion. Our website, expandcancare.com, will have each action listed for each step, along with a toolkit of communications and other resources that anyone can use. The first step is happening now, and it's to establish a relationship with your elected official and let them know how much CanCare expansion means to you. We also have a petition that we want everyone to sign to show just how much support CanCare expansion has. 
The second step, once an expansion bill has been introduced, will be to push legislators to give the bill a hearing. And if we manage to get a hearing, we'll then push for a vote on the issue and, you know, so on and so forth. We also will have action alerts that we send out to CanCare expansion supporters, which are time-sensitive calls to action that we usually send out via email and social media. And basically, it involves calling or emailing a legislator by a certain deadline. So if there's, um, you know, if we're lucky enough to get a hearing, it would be a matter of like reaching out to your legislator and urging them to support expansion being passed out of committee. That's just an example. There will be certain natural deadlines in the session as well. So there is a deadline for bills making it out of the first house. So if a bill is introduced in the Senate, um, it needs to make it uh, all the way through the process in the Senate by a certain time unless it happens to be an exempt bill. And there also are deadlines like um, the end of the regular session, the end of the veto session, which happens um, kind of toward the end of the process, and then sine die, which is the very end of the legislative session. And those things um, will prompt action as well. The legislative session, because it's so compact, things come up and they don't have a lot of opportunity for for notice for us to blast things out. So so make sure you're kind of paying attention. You know, when they come up, the opportunity window might not be very long, particularly with things like uh, budgets or an opportunity for an amendment or something like that. Those things, they, they move quickly. Yeah, and that's why you can follow us on social media. Make sure you're part of our email list here at the Alliance because we will always put those out when we get a chance to keep you informed. So if you haven't already, we encourage you to go to our website, sign up to be on our email list. And we are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And we'll put out information on those channels too. Sean, with your experience as a legislator, do you have any advice or suggestions for people reaching out during these crucial moments of the session? So the first thing is, uh, you know, really when crunch time hits, your status, you know, what your relationship is with that legislator couldn't be more important. So if you've got an established relationship, then your email or your phone call sort of rises to the top of the inbox. Mm. The other thing to remember is, you know, again, crunch time. This is when legislators are just being over overrun. Trying multiple routes, uh, sending an email and uh, the letter or whatever else, that may be the, the way you kind of need to do it. And and don't be discouraged. You know, that they didn't get back to you directly does not mean that you were not hurt. You you are making an impact each and every time you reach out there. You're 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 not always gonna get them to flip from a no to a yes or a yes to a no, uh uh-huh, and just immediately see your way. You are having influence. You're pushing them slowly in your direction and you do that over time and not necessarily you know, at the flip of a switch. This is a, a marathon and not necessarily a sprint at any, at any given time. That's good advice. I like that. Um, April, you have also seen expansion introduced in the legislature year after year now. Do you have any suggestions or words of wisdom with this upcoming session? 
Um, absolutely. I think, you know, we've been working on this for a long time in Kansas. And um, for some reason, there is a disconnect between the clear will of the people that we've seen through those very high poll results um, of people supporting expansion as high as 78% of Kansans, um, and what's happening at the actual state house. And I think the most important thing that we can do as advocates this year, and the way I think we'll ultimately be successful, is by bringing as many regular Kansans into the advocacy movement for CanCare expansion as possible. So we need policymakers to understand how important this is to their districts and to the constituents that they serve. Bring your friends. Absolutely. Um, So I know we're kind of winding down, but Sean, we ask each of our podcast guests the same question. So right now it's your turn. So why are you one of the eight and 10 Kansans who support CanCare expansion? So I I have personal reasons. I have way too many reasons. Um, So, you know, when I was a kid, we we were uninsured for most of my my childhood. My um, I've got close members of my family that have been uninsured uh, relatively recently because they kind of fell into that gap. And I've seen folks have to kind of delay care or find alternative uh, methods of accessing care, uh, sort of anecdotally. And then when I when I joined the legislature, and then when I've since I've been doing this work, I've I've met constituents in much more dire situations that they've they've had to make sort of life altering decisions because they they did not have that sort of access to to basic health care. But beyond that, I think that the data is just so clear that it is important for us to do this so that we uh, build a much more healthy system and have healthier folks around us. Uh, By improving access to care, you improve the day-to-day lives of Kansans. That improves the lives for all of us. Um, And that's why I'm one of the eight and 10. Well, April and Sean, thank you so much for being here today and giving our listeners a Legislative 101 primer. As the session begins, I hope you'll come back and join us if we have exciting things or complicated things to explain to people, because you both know far more than I do. So uh, thanks for thanks for being here. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I really appreciate the work that you and Marissa have done to make this podcast happen. So, um, Marissa and I are both blushing. Yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> I, I'm a listener and someone who appreciates it as well. Well, thank you. Yes, thank you. Uh, Marissa, do you want to take a minute before we close up to talk about our storytelling work? I do want to do that. We are always looking for new storytellers, you guys. A storyteller is basically anyone who has a story to share about why they support cane care expansion. So that might be someone who lives in the coverage gap currently, um, a healthcare provider or community worker who works with individuals in the coverage gap, or maybe a business owner or employer who knows that expansion would benefit their business. We have all sorts of storytellers, so if that is something you're interested in doing, please reach out to us at marissa at expandcancare.com. Right now, we are especially interested in child care providers or early education workers who might fall into the coverage gap or otherwise benefit from expansion. So if you fit in that category, I would love to talk with you more. We are also excited to let you all know that we just launched our new website at expandcancare.com. 
We have tons of great information there, but we also have exciting new features, like speaking of storytellers, the ability to meet all of our storytellers by topic. So if you are interested in reading about stories, maybe you're a small business owner or a person who had cancer and you want to meet other storytellers like yourself, you can look at those with just a couple of clicks. We have lots of categories, including things like behavioral health, agricultural stories, and and just tons of topics. So please go on there and check those out. We are also always on social media. You can find us at Expand Can Care is our handle. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast to get all of our latest episodes. We hope you will also share our podcast with your friends and family and a five-star review would really help us out too. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you again in two weeks. Health in the 34th is a podcast from the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas. We hope you'll take a moment to subscribe and share our podcast with others. Episodes written, recorded, and edited by Marissa Alcantar and Lacey Kennett. Episodes available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Join the movement and get involved on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. To find out more about the Alliance for a Healthy Kansas, visit us at expandcancare.com.